Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each episode, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment businesses. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners seeking expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Regular listeners will know that this is part of a series uh, where I interview Uh, leaders of recruitment businesses and we learn something different about their sectors and about their approach to growth and what makes those companies unique and different. I am delighted to be joined today by two friends and clients that's James Truswell and Andrew Dean of Menlo Park Recruitment. Welcome guys. Thanks very much for having us. Yeah, thanks very much. It's my pleasure Um, and um, looking forward to talking a little bit more about the business. Before we do, Brief intro, James and Andrew, you met while working at another recruitment business and then decided to set up on your own. Prior to that, you had different backgrounds. Um, James, you were a journalist. Andrew, you worked in a museum. So let's just start there. What on earth attracted you to recruitment in the first place? Um, Andrew? Yeah, I suppose it was a you know, classic case of not knowing what I wanted to do Um you know, after finishing university, I'd done archaeology at university and um, had actually signed up to do law. So I was going to be a lawyer and then freaked out uh, last minute and decided, no, no, thank you. I don't want to do that. Um, and I'd been doing some museum work um, whilst I'd been doing my studies. So an opportunity presented itself. Um, I started working in a museum. I didn't think I'd be there for as long as I was, um, but it was 2008. So the last time that we were properly in a recession. So it wasn't easy to uh, to look for opportunities. And as much as I liked, uh, you know, working in that job, it was very interesting. Um, it wasn't very target driven. Um, you know, it was it was hard to get motivated. I knew I wanted something that was was going to push me. Um, so the role that I went for in the end was it was just actually in the same um, town that I was working with at the time. So I was comfortable with the location. It was in medical recruitment. And my family come from a background of working in medical. Um, so I thought that, you know, locationally, um, it was going to be good. And it was, you know, um, an industry I could get behind and, uh, you know, and, and learn. So, uh, so yeah, I went for it. And initially, um, actually, I didn't get the job. I was given the whole, you know, spiel, oh, Will, you know, it was very close. You know, you were second. We went with someone with more experience. And I genuinely didn't think I'd hear from them again. Um, and I was getting married a few months later anyway, so I, you know, um, was was pretty busy. And then literally a week before my wedding, was contacted. Oh, um, you know, you still interested in a job? It's like yes. I went and literally, you know, they offered me the job um, then and there, which I accepted, and I started straight after I, I, I got married. So, yeah, it was like 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 most people getting into recruitment. It was um, yes, I, I chose. I, you know, I applied for it, but there was no specific kind of desire to work in in recruitment prior to me seeing this advert. Right, but you were interested in in something that was goal orientated and and you were quite happy to take on a targeted type environment. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was the key. I mean, you know, even, you know, whilst I was there, you know, as I say, it was a recession. It was really difficult to... um, you know, for, to apply for roles, um, you know, during during that period. I'd even, again, I'd signed up for forensic archaeology 
with the University of Bradford because still didn't know what I wanted to uh, to do, and I got accepted on, on onto that course as well. But uh, yeah, I, I'd, I'd not applied for much within recruitment. I knew I didn't want to do anything kind of you know general. I specifically you know targeted um, agencies that would give me the opportunity to to learn a sector. Um, to become an expert Um, and yeah I was specifically choosing environments that were going to you know push me Um, you know I wanted to earn a bit more money as well you don't earn much working in a museum Um, so it was those yeah it was it was those kind of factors that that prompted me I did have a close family member that that worked in recruitment as well that had you know given me a bit of an insight into the industry. Okay so you had some idea what you were taking on and James what attracted you from journalism into recruitment? Well Andy probably had about 10 reasons there and then eventually got to money whereas for me I think probably the first reason <laughs> was money because again um, a bit like working in museums being a journalist doesn't pay very well at all and I was in print journalism so I was working for a, a regional newspaper back in Stoke the Stoke Sentinel and it was it's a daily paper it's quite a big paper um, but I could see the writing was on the wall in terms of where print journalism was going and where journalism was going in general um, and I didn't want to do broadcast journalism. I didn't, it wasn't really my thing. Um, so it was basically now's the time to get out. Yeah. It, it was just for, for what you did as a journalist, it was very low paying. Um, I actually really enjoyed the job. Um, but you know, it's, it's evenings, weekends, it's hard work. It's unpaid overtime. It's all those things that, well, actually you do a lot of these things in recruitment, but then you get paid for them. It's brilliant. <laughs> um, whereas you don't get that, um, in journalism and, I just felt like I could actually do recruitment because I think one of the really important things that a good recruiter needs to be good at is is proactivity and not waiting for things to come to you. And it's the same with journalism. You you don't just get stories. Um, you've got to go out and find them. You've got to go knocking on doors. You know, there's many times when, um, you know, an incident happens. It could be someone getting hit by a bus or um, something equally as grim normally, you know, because most journalism is pretty grim um, and then you'd have to go and find the family members of that child that got hit by a bus and knock on their door and I think if you can go and knock on the door of um, parents whose child's just got hit by a bus and try and get a story out of them and do it successfully then you could probably you could probably work in recruitment. Okay really interesting parallel that I don't think most people would have would have thought of so but you're interesting you have both both mentioned money motivation and it's something that when I'm speaking to clients I was uh, I often ask them you know how do you assess this when selecting new recruiters who haven't got any any background in in recruitment and it's uh, people tend to sort of pussyfoot around it a little bit you know we look for competitiveness and goal orientation and those are right but you can actually be highly competitive and not money motivated and you know there comes a point where that competitiveness will um will not be the right level to get people to work in difficult markets. Okay, so moving on, you've you've you set up together Menlo Park Recruitment based in Leeds. The business has been very successful. You've been awarded Recruitment Company of the Year by your public uh, in the GP Awards, and Most Outstanding Primary Care Recruitment Company and the Global Excellence Awards. So. Um, you, you clearly had a desire to do something different when you set up. James, I'd like you, if you would, for our listeners' benefit, to tell us about your business now, some key points about the markets that you serve, and um, what you hope to achieve when you guys set up Menlo Park. Okay, well, 
as as we are now, we are still um, GP centred in terms of our core, core market. So primary care. Um, although we actually only set up recruiting GPs, we now recruit um, allied health. So nurse practitioners, practice nurses, paramedics, physician associates, pharmacists, anything that goes into a GP surgery, and that kind of remains our our core market, probably about. 70 to 80 percent and that's the market that i lead on and andy leads on health tech which is um both uk and us based um which is newer less than two years old um fledgling and um i think dif difficult <laughs> um it's fair to say that you know new markets are difficult it's like setting up a new business every time <laughs> um, when you don't have a reputation or a candidate database all you really have is a company name a logo and a a bit of back office support but apart from that you, you're starting from scratch every time um so that's where we are now but just going back to the the other point you you asked about uh, in terms of our aims our vision at the start i think i'd be really honest i don't know if andy's got a different answer to this but um i'm not sure if i had much of a vision at the start <laughs> i think to start with um i just wanted to leave the company we were working for um for quite a few reasons it didn't sit right with me working there and they didn't treat staff amazingly well. So the first thing was I think getting out and then um, to, to start with just trying to survive um, the two of us billing, obviously working from my flat in Leeds, which was like a, what was a kitchen, living room, dining room and office all in one. <laughs> you know, and at, at that point it was just, can, can we do it? Can we bill? And, and, that, and that was it to start with. And to be fair, it has been Andy that's driven the growth in terms of headcount um a vision for actually going beyond um just us i think mainly i think otherwise i probably would just sat there <laughs> you know in my little room just billing machine on the phone all day every day um probably doing quite well but not necessarily growing a whole business and there was no doubt about it i mean the two of you were, were making very substantial revenues just being billers yourself um the the G, gps are very much in the news at the moment and um, so it would be helpful, I think, for our listeners just to understand a little bit about um, the recruiting into the GP sector, because it's it, you're not working via NHS frameworks, are you? It's slightly different from that. What are the specific challenges in that market? Um, well, just I suppose in terms of the market, it's it's, it's the shortage is the main thing. Um, since I started recruiting in GPs in 2013, there's been a candidate shortage since then um and that's still the case now it's probably more so than ever i think we did an audit recently that um because we track all live jobs across all job boards and i think vacancies had gone up in the last 12 months by about 60 percent so we were already in a shortage market and now there's 60 percent more vacancies with the same amount of gps and obviously they're, they're retiring earlier um they're choosing locum work or they're going to australia or canada so the main thing is the shortage there's consistent talk of burnout um, it's on the agenda in primary care. Um, so most GPs really feel like they can only work part time because of how difficult and intense the job is um, on a daily basis. So that's a big challenge, I think, for well, for, for the government to try and solve that, um, which doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and it's a you know matter of very public record that this is a major problem, and of course, even if, even in a shortage occupation, you cannot just go overseas and recruit GPs because lots of countries don't have that model of primary care, uh, of a general practitioner at the front line, do they? So, Andy, you've been leading on expansion into new markets. 
Um, could you just talk our audience through the, the logic behind that, um, why you chose the markets that you did and, you know, what the challenges and opportunities have been? So pre, well, I, I, you know, pre-pandemic, um, you know, we'd earmarked health tech as an area that uh, we wanted to, uh, to to look at, um, you know, for, for obvious reasons. It, it was just looking at the future. It was just looking at the way that, you know, people were accessing, you know, healthcare. Um, you know, it, it looked like that, you know, a kind of area um, that we could get into. And I suppose, you know, an important thing about it as well was that it was significantly different from, you know, primary care in terms of, you know, spreading risk um, and how, you know, markets might affect one and, and potentially not the other. Um, so that was actually, you know, we, we'd worked on that as part of, you know, some some forecasting uh, in about 2019, I think. Um, then obviously we had the uh, the pandemic and it did affect, you know, it did affect uh, primary care. Um, a lot of people assume that because we, you know, we're working, you know, within the NHS and because it was so busy um, that it was just, you know, for us, it was, yeah, a good time just, you know, watching the fees roll in. But that, that's not how the primary care market um, responded, uh, you know, at all. Actually, it really kind of just you know, froze up and went very insular. Um, we survived because we had really good relationships. But, you know, new business was, um, you know, hard to come by. Um, and, you know, there was a, you know, a bit of a hairy time, you know, for, you know, four to six months, um, you know, during the middle of that. Um, so, you know, that, that prompted us to, um, I suppose, you know, bring some of those plans that we'd had to, you know, to the forefront and start to look at, at other sectors. Um, during that time, I suppose, you know, what you had was uh, the availability of, of, of certain candidates on the market, shall we say, um, that, that perhaps, you know, were not there before. So I was, I was, I was having different conversations with, with people that, that were um, available. So we did look at um, a couple of different markets beyond health tech as well um, at the same time. Um, and uh, yeah, it, you know, let's, let's just say it was, uh, you know, a, a, learning, a learning curve, you know, during that period. And yeah, to be quite frank, you know, um, some of the, the things that we looked at, you know, they, they simply, you know, they, they've not worked the way that we perhaps expected. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I've learned is you, you can't just take the blueprint of, you know, something that's working really well, for example, like primary care and transpose that on, on onto a different market. Um, so, um, yeah, there's been some, you know, really kind of interesting, you know, takeaways, you know, from that. Um, and I'm glad we've done it because I think if we kind of remained within that primary care bubble, which we, we do so well, there's, there's only so much you, you can learn, I think when you're, you know, when you're at the top of your game, I think it's from challenging situations and trying to overcome certain difficulties, which is where you grow and where you learn a bit more about um, recruitment. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? More and more, when I look across all the, the business owners I know in recruitment, the specialization in sector has become more than just a business development tool now. You know, they, people, recruitment businesses are, the best ones are of their sector rather than simply a supplier to it or taking revenue from it or people from it yeah they're actually contributing to it you know the the totality of intelligence in their sector retention and attraction to the sector and so on and um so you get that very high level of specialism. But when you hit the level of penetration that you guys have got in the GP market, you do have to diversify. And then you discover, as you say, Andy, that that taking the same approach, particularly when you're moving from 
national to international um, and public sector to private sector, it, it really doesn't work. And it's something that's hard to explain until you've had a few knockbacks and, under, and felt it yourself, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, it's, it's everything from, you know, how you acquire, you know, really good data. Um, because, you know, I've, I've commented, you know, before that, um, you know, recruitment companies, you know, your, your, your data and marketing, you know, companies with, with a sales department. So if you don't get your data right, then, you know, not much else, you know, falls into place after that, to be honest. Um, so yeah, trying to, um, acquire really good data, um, you know, both domestically and overseas is, is really challenging, particularly within a niche that, that isn't defined. So in, in lots of other recruitment industries, you'll have people approaching all the time saying, oh, do you want to buy this, you know, this you know, B2B data and they'll have contacts and things like that. Um, health tech in particular, it's, it, it's not defined, you know, um, if you go on to, to LinkedIn, health tech companies feature under about six or seven industries as specified by LinkedIn. And a lot of the data companies, they're working on, on those types of, you know, um, uh, platforms to, uh, to acquire, you know, data sets uh, along with other things, of, of course. But it becomes, you know, it becomes quite challenging and tricky to, um, you know, to, to acquire. Um, and then you've got to think about how you're going to, you know, market and reach target audience. And then you've got to think about, you know, obviously competitors that already exist within those markets. Um, and then, for example, if you're, you know, looking at the US, which we do um, on, on health tech, it's such a, you know, such a huge, huge market. Um, and there are certain kind of, you know, cultural differences as well when you're approaching, you know, American businesses that, um, you know, we'd perhaps not thought of, you know, previously, uh, you know, not to mention the, the time differences and, and those, you know, types of things that you have to contend with. Um, so yeah, you know, a lot of what I've just mentioned there are things that we're learning as 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 we go along. So um, yeah, it's 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 not as you know straightforward as you think, um, and there's a whole lot of you know learning that that you need to do. Um, but it has been you know really interesting, and it has been you know challenging. And I think that you know is definitely given us more of a you know, well-rounded, holistic view of of recruitment than if we were just you know concentrating on our our core market. You've actually been through a, a, a huge amount of growth in the last two years. Not everything's worked out, but um, during that, uh, I'd like to focus in now on uh, with both of you on how your skills as a leader have developed. So, Andy, you touched on it there. You were saying that the importance of data um, and getting that right from the beginning uh, and realising when it's not possible, that's a big factor. Um James, can I flick back to you and ask you how you feel your skills as a leader have developed over the last two years? Yeah, um, so I've been a recruiter for 10 years. So kind of the first eight have been just billing, as I said, kind of t tunnel vision, um, just kind of ignoring everyone and just getting on with, with billing. And then it's been the past two years um, when I've actually started taking management responsibility and, and uh, running the primary care team. So Kind of in that time, there's probably been a few key lessons, I think, particularly management things. Um, I'd say number one is um, don't assume that everyone wants to be managed how you like to be managed. I think everyone wants to be managed differently. Um, there's so many different personalities, even in in my team, which is 11 direct consultant reports. Um, and what motivates some people completely demotivates the others. <laughs> and I'm kind of learning as I go and that people work at, at different speeds and have different strengths and weaknesses. And obviously, it's your job as a manager to identify what they are, and so you can add value in the in the right places. So that's that's probably number one. And then number two is your staff are human beings, 
um, and so are you. I think a good recruiter needs to be naturally empathetic and, and so should good leaders. I think if you're not em empathetic towards your, your staff, then they're not going to have much interest in the company and probably over time might even resent working for you. Um, and recruiters aren't just, just billing machines that you can kind of just switch on and then just leave them, just leave them to bill. Um, they need they need maintenance, they need regular time with you. And, and I think they actually need a purpose as well, certainly with Gen Z coming through. Um, they need a purpose as well as just commission. Um, whereas I, I suppose, touching back on why I got into recruitment, it was commission. <laughs> whereas um, I think these days, commission doesn't seem to be enough. Earning loads of money doesn't seem to be enough. They'd actually need to feel wanted and have, and have that purpose. Something that, you know, obviously having worked with you, I would also say is that your um, level of analytical skills um, is really high you know uh, you always you've always got a very very tight grip on the um, the actualities of the finances what our average fees are what the trends are and so forth so um, it's um, uh, you know I think that that analytical skill is something that's you've got even stronger at Andy over to you um, how do you think your skills as a leader have developed in terms of uh, of leading the business as well as managing people um well, i suppose yeah it's been an interesting you know couple of years and um i think as i said before you know th it, things are you know when things are going um you know when it's straightforward and there aren't any bumps in the road it's easy but it's easy to become you know complacent as as, as well um at the same time and i, I don't think it's um you know, I don't think you grow in, in those kind of environments. Um, so I think, um, yeah, it, I suppose the challenges for us as well as a growing business is when, when, you, when it's a smaller group of people, you have a smaller number of, you know, personalities, the demands on you are, are naturally less. Um, when you, when you grow, um, you've got to, you've got to, you know, delegate to a, to a certain um, you know, degree. And I think that's one of the things that we found really difficult um, letting go of because it was, you know, because it's been James and, and, and myself's, uh, you know, business and we started as a, as a, as a twosome. It's very much our, our baby, something that we have a, a lot of, you know, pride in. And up until, you know, recently, um, you know, we have been the ones, you know, making decisions, um, setting the tone um, and, uh, and that type of thing. So, so for me, it's, it's gradually, um, you know, dealing with you know, volume in terms of the number of people and also um, letting go in terms of delegation and handing certain activities over to different members um, of the team. But that's also been a, you know, really positive thing as well, um, because that's been absolutely essential to actually, you know, grow even further because it gets to a point where you can't invest any more of your kind of, you know, time or expertise into to something you, you do need, you know, you do need that help. So, yeah, letting go and, and not being as much of a, you know, control freak, I think is um, something that, yeah, I, I've had to learn because I can be, you know, very much of a, you know, a control freak, I think. Can I just add one more on that actually, um, in terms of, I suppose, one thing that we've learned or one thing that I think recruitment companies probably should do better is, um, ensuring that your back office team, so for us, that's the admin team and the marketing team, are fully aligned in the company vision and that the recruiters actually understand the importance of what they do um, and how much impact they have on what they do. And if you've got an engaged back office team that's extremely competent, then they're going to add massive value to your business and allow your recruiters to bill much more than um, if they weren't very good or if they turned over. So, so for us, 
we introduced a commission scheme for the admin and marketing team um, last quarter. Um, out of feedback we got on the, uh, we did an anonymous survey, I think for the first time last November, and the engagement on the recruiting side was amazing. It was really high, 90% or something. Whereas on the admin and marketing side, it was lower. And I think it's because in recruitment companies, recruiters can often earn so much money and obviously think it's all about them um, and can often be selfish. And, you know, you, you do need recruitment recruiters to be selfish. So not arguing with that, but um, it's focused so much on the recruiter because they're doing the fi- I say the final bit. Obviously, it is a big part of the process, <laughs> the recruitment in a recruitment company. But sometimes admin and marketing might feel lost uh, or disengaged. And from a financial point of view, not feel like they're getting rewarded. Whereas now um, here, they are on a commission scheme, um, which is based on business performance. It's basically how well are the consultants doing? Um, and they all get a percentage of that at the end of each quarter. And recently, um, the engagement's gone up on the, the last anonymous survey we did by, by some distance. Right. Okay. So um, it's a really good point. And you, you guys have a fairly substantial back office team. Um, Andy, can I just flip back to you? Can you just describe what, you know, what constitutes your back office team? Um, and, you know, any, any other specific actions that you take to involve those people in the aims of the business? Yeah, I suppose crucially, and you know, uh, cru- you know for anyone listening, um, when we you know um, talk about uh, you know growing and headcount and and things like that, people are going to assume you know we're talking about recruitment consultants. But um, yeah, the admin team and our marketing function have always grown alongside um, the uh, the recruitment team. So we've got about um, something like six dedicated um, you know admin staff. And, you know, particularly on, on primary care, our, our, our central, um, you know, the core of the business, um, it's about taking as, as much paperwork and downtime away from consultants as, as possible. Um, so they do a tremendous amount of work when it comes to, you know, market intelligence stuff. So, um, you know, the gathering of, of vacancy intel, making sure that goes on the CRM system so that we can chase directly from there. So in our business, consultants aren't having to, to look for opportunities. They're there on the system. It's a quick search. They can they can go and do that. And it makes the process really efficient. Um, they deal with any kind of, um, you know, incoming and responses to adverts, you know, marketing queries, um, you know, literally everything in relation to, to maintaining the, uh, the CRM system. So the whole kind of philosophy behind that is the consultants are then left to get on with, you know, actually being a consultant and focusing on sales activity, the stuff that's actually going to, you know, make money for the business and the stuff that they actually want to do. Um, because, I'm, you know, I'm sure it's common across, you know, every recruitment business, you know, sometimes it's not exactly, you know, admin is not the, uh, the, the forte of a lot of recruitment consultants. And I think a lot of the time is it, it's because they don't think they should be getting bogged down with it that they want to be focused on those activities that are going to deliver results um so that's really important for our business then we have a separate uh, marketing function headed up by our, our marketing manager and um that that's been really important as well um you know as i said earlier on you know it's uh, you know recruitment companies are you know data and marketing companies and and, and, and sales is marketing so Having that dedicated focus and someone, you know, looking at all of our, you know, social media channels, you know, website, um, literally leading from the front as far as initiatives are, are concerned and, uh, you know, bringing innovations to, you know, uh, you know, things that we're doing in terms of specific projects. It makes a huge, huge difference because it's stuff that the consultants aren't having to, to think about. 
but it's it's stuff that they can you know brand with um and it's stuff that results in you know more incoming inquiries into the to the business absolutely and so many uh, times i hear recruitment consultants go you know you might be asking about the history of a placement and where did that candidate come from and they say they just phoned in it never actually happens like that does it even if they have picked up the phone that is a result of all the brand building efforts, multiple touch points are very often created by a marketing team and an admin team. Um, and of course, you make um, strong use of, of resources to gather data as well. OK, so the last two years has of co- have, of course, been characterized by the pandemic and other big shifts. Um, you know, Brexit, obviously, multiple skill shortages the me too movement the the you know the influence of gen z and so forth as leaders in recruitment where you know typically we have tend to have a a youngish um employee employee profile um what do you think the most important things are that leaders now have to do differently yeah, I think you know Jay. Jay alluded to it in in the previous uh, question when he mentioned about um, you know the survey. So I think the first thing is you know don't have any assumptions. But one of the you know the, the second most important point is you know having your employees as, as stakeholders. Um, you know, so getting them involved on on decisions. So you know things like you know the surveys have been really really important um, in terms of uh, fostering engagement. But then actually, you know, it's not just the case of doing a survey and going, oh great, you know, we've got a fantastic score. Um, you know, you've got to take points away from that actionable items and then be seen to to work upon those in the business. Um, so I think that's that's been you know really really important for us um, you know as a, as an organisation. Um, so we're trying to give people a voice because it's not just about it's it's difficult you know people will come to you with with certain you know issues and, and problems and, and queries but they they won't um, in in certain other um, you know scenarios. So giving them a platform when they you know where they can comment anonymously or confidential uh, you know confidentially is is really important to us you know fostering that that overall feeling of trust and then actually doing something um you know with the uh, the data and, and feedback so you know we'd, we'd recommend that to um yeah to, to any recruitment business yeah actually you know the the whole you said in the survey xyz we listened here's what we've done or indeed even just saying here's why we can't do anything about that at the moment um does is really important yeah, you can't action everything, but as long I think, as long as you're prepared to enter dialogue and then have a you know proper conversation about it, sometimes that that that's enough. But there have been you know you know a range of things that we have been able to you know actually make specific changes for and allowances for. Give us some more examples, if you would, Andy. So we've heard about the commission for for non-billing staff. Yeah, that that was that was a really really good one. Um, uh, you know, one that the you know, springs the one is the, the menopause. Um, you know, it's something that uh, you know someone had you know a member of staff had had mentioned, um, and that allowed us to yeah you know actually speak to uh, you know a professional um, that that came into uh, to the business um, to you know um, explain about you know what some of the issues are for, for workplaces and, and people going through that, um, you know, what, what we can do. 
Um, and in turn, that actually led to a really good, um, you know, series that we that we ran across, you know, social media that, you know, so it allowed us to look at internally. But we also um, you know, did some stuff, um, particularly on the primary care side of things, that was, um, you know, a, a series looking at the menopause and working with, you know, certain professionals in that field to spread the uh, I, I suppose the message that, that not a lot of it is, um, you know, that not much is done about it in workplaces um, and it affects so many you know, women um, across, you know, a multitude of, of different working environments. Um, and even within you know, GP surgeries themselves, you know, a lot of clinicians felt they were not able uh, or they were not receiving appropriate um, education on how to um, you know, treat uh, patients and even um, you know, help colleagues that, that were going through it. Um, so just through that one, you know, suggestion, as I say, it had an in, impact on us internally, but it also allowed us to, you know, have an impact with, you know, with with our um, within it with our network. And, it, and it's like you said, you know, when you get to a certain size, you want to become a, you know, uh, you want to be a stakeholder, you want to be involved in in processes and things that impact the sector. And, and that's something that, that genuinely did. But then we've had, you know, queries on everything from, you know, certain processes. We had something about sick pay, which was which was interesting because obviously, um, you know, we're in recruitment, uh, we're a private company and, you know, no one likes to take a, a day off sick in, in recruitment if you can uh, help it. But, um, you know, it came from a member of staff. And as Jay said previously, not everyone is concerned with just the money um, we get a lot of kind of suggestions around you know health and well-being in work so we're starting to you know get yeah you know, we do have you know private healthcare policies and well-being policies already you know in situ but we do also now and then get a couple of questions about you know can you look at this and and we are actually looking at the sick pay and we are going to be um, you know introducing um, a sick pay policy uh, for the first time. Thank you. Okay. And any listeners, by the way, who are rolling their eyes and thinking on menopause, that's nothing to do with me. Um, Here's a fascinating statistic. By 2024, just two years away, government estimates say that one in every two workers will be over 50, which statistically means that about one in every four uh, will be affected by that. So that's a lot, isn't it? James, you were about to say something, I think. I, I was just going to add one more thing to the in terms of leaders and expectations these days. And I think it's obviously being men, mental health aware. I mean, obviously mental health's not not new on the agenda necessarily, but um, it's something that y- you will have to tackle as a leader and it's, it's prevalent. And I suppose just to give you one specific example, um, we've got a, a consultant who's a high performer here who has been performing very well, um, but has been struggling a bit uh, mentally, hasn't affected billings necessarily, but just a general feeling of, of low mood. So um, I think Andy mentioned we've, we've got the private health and yeah, you can organise counselling through that, but not everyone wants to go for the counselling option. And that's, well, I don't know if there is still a stigma. I think, I think there is for some people at least to have counselling. So instead, what I arranged um, for this person was, um, a session with our recruitment trainer, who's kind of part recruitment trainer, but she's also part psychology guru, um, and just yeah, very, very bright and understands people. Um, to have a session with with this consultant, um, and basically I think di- diagnose the person as having very low level kind of post COVID anxiety, just ebbing away at this person, and it's just created this this low mood and almost kind of survivor's guilt about. Um, not really massively being impacted in, by COVID and set action points, um, told this person you know, actions to take um, and 
is already feeling much better. And it just it just took someone who is a recruitment trainer by trade, um, but I knew I knew what she was like in terms of on the psychological side um, to really help this person um, overcome it who is already feeling better. So I think it's just being aware and take action. It's an interesting example, isn't it, of how much more than ever before um, leaders in all sorts of businesses have to in effect um, deal with the whole person rather than just the, the work aspects um, of what they do and I know if I go way back in time to my first roles I remember being advised look you know it, only deal with them as what you can control that's right in front of you that's work related and actually the brief the, the the remit now is much much bigger and employees expect you to take um an active interest in the full 360 of them i mean is is it all doable um question you know is it is this is it unrealistic to expect you to be you know a an inspirational leader a man manager a, an entertainer a financial advisor a social worker uh you know social conscience as well you know providing csr op- opportunities and all the rest of it um where does this end and and how do you actually manage those pressures yourselves um andy um you know is it achievable i'm i'm, I'm not sure i think you know for, for james and i we probably still you know are in that position um, because, you know, despite the growth, you know, it, it's a fairly flat management structure still. We've got people coming through the ranks and, you know, that, that infrastructure will, you know, change eventually. But we still are, you know, in many respects, the figurehead of the business. And, and people do look to you um, for advice, whether it's work or, or personal. It's just, a, um, you know, it's, it's just a fact. Um, and we've, you know, never positioned ourselves away from, you know, the action as it as it were in terms of locking ourselves away. We're very accessible. We've, you know, we've we've never had separate offices. We've always been, you know, on the on the sales floor. Um, we we are just, you know, by nature, I think, you know, quite quite approachable and 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 we are quite available uh, a lot of the time. So, I, you know, I think we we, we obviously deal with um, you know things best we can, and it's nice that we've got each other to to fall back on for you know advice and and that type of thing. But I think the um, yeah the answer is that you know as I say, is it achievable? I don't know, but we're having to do it. But I think James obviously just gave an example where, you know, he's faced with a situation and he did, you know, he was able to identify some external help that, you know, um, solve that that particular issue. Because there are certain things that we're not going to be able to, to necessarily, you know, deal with um, or handle. Um, but then you've just got to use, yeah, your, you know, your common sense, uh, you know, draw on your bank of, you know, support, you know, that are, you know, outside the business potentially and 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 do the best and do the best that you can james anything you want to add on that um yeah i just i think i agree i agree um so your question is basically can, can we do it all as leaders i think i think we probably we have to people's expectations of leaders these days are are pretty high i think <laughs> although that might be you know the imposter syndrome talking but i think if you're not strong on all fronts then you probably lose something from that person. Um, I mentioned Gen-, Gen Z earlier on, and I suppose we're kind of equipping ourselves <laughs> for them coming in. We don't we don't have many of them. In fact, the, the one uh, the one that kind of fits into the the Gen Z here doesn't act like a Gen Z. But I think 
as they enter the as they're prevalent in the workforce um they seem they're going to want more time off more flexibility um like a greater social and environmental responsibility from a business i mentioned the purpose before as well um and i think that to be competitive in recruiting and it is a tough market um to recruit anything it seems <laughs> not just a recruiter but absolutely anything seems hard to recruit these days um you've got to be a flexible employer and I think you've got to you've got to be everything as a leader um, for people to want to work for you. And of course, as, as most recruitment business owners are running micro businesses, that flexibility is still in their toolkit, unlike for a, for a very large company. Um, one thing I would add, um, and that is that we don't necessarily have the skills or the training to address every issue that staff bring up. So you raise the whole issue of, of um, mental health and well-being. And um, actually using experienced um, staff assistance and confidential staff assistance um, services, um, which are, you know, provider uh, trained counsellors who can deal with some of this stuff um, is it can be really, really useful. I know a lot of inexperienced managers who have got sucked into trying to diagnose and treat well-being issues um, or find, even offer financial advice to their staff, which is very risky um, and actually um, is probably better dealt with by a trained counsellor. So those can be a really useful um, and cost-effective route to, to pick. Okay, so let's move to the future now. Um, James, could you give our audience a brief outline of what your growth plans are at Menlo Park? Yes, so um, at the moment we're, we're 25 staff, um, plus Andy and I, so I think about 27 in, in total. Um, we, we sat down in May and did a, a three-year orbit, so we feel like there's, there's still further growth in primary care. So at the moment we've got 11 consultants on primary care, on GP and allied health, and I think in three years the aim, uh, the aim for that division is 15 to 16 um though the who knows um it's, it's it's always really hard to say until it happens isn't it but because i think four, four years ago i probably would have said that division shouldn't be more than probably six people um and now it's 11 but the more you get into a market and and dominate it um the the, the more you can grow health tech's obviously much harder to plan in terms of growth um but it is a huge market um it could potentially be a huge market so I think on the orbit, we went from 20, obviously we're 27 now, I think it was 31 heads next year, 37 the year after and 43 in three years time. But I don't know if that was ambitious planning, but that's that's the orbit and it's written down. Um, so that, that is the target. And I'm supposed to achieve this. Um, we need to keep, we need to firstly, I think, keep keep our high performers um, and that that's recruiters and it's admin and marketing. So it's keep, keeping all the, the really uh, key people in the business um, because without those all you have really well you have a database don't you <laughs> and, that, and that, that's all you have left so it's, it's keeping um, the high performers and then also um, we're moving to a new marketing platform and then later this year we're moving to a new CRM so hopefully this will provide new leads um, and actually be game-changing um, with some of the things we hope our new marketing platform and CRM can do um, will allow us to, to grow the business further. Okay. And um, you guys, for anyone who's actually watching the video stream of this podcast, you guys are dialing into this from your um, extraordinary new offices in Leeds, which um, you've bought, and they've had a very sexy, stylish refit. 
Um, so it, it was a, a fantastic place to work. Anyone who's interested in talking in confidence to you about opportunities at Menlo Park, um, how should they get in touch with you? Uh, yes, yeah, so I'd probably drop me an email. So yeah, anyone who, who wants to work for an award-winning uh, market-leading company with a huge level of consultant support, massive database, uh, amazing reputation, uh, an unrivaled commission scheme, then yeah, drop me an email. Is that a good enough sell? And it's uh, <laughs> james at menlopartrecruitment.com. Thank you very much. Um, Andy, James, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, listeners, this has been the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that and were able to take some actionable points from it. Really interesting insight into um, healthcare and health tech recruitment. Um, so this is Alison Humphreys. If you're interested in talking about how you too can grow and be an award-winning company, uh, contact me, alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so that others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about recruitment leadership, please email alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk referencing the podcast. We're also on LinkedIn where you can follow Recruitment Leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys. Thank you for listening and we hope you join us next time for another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.